You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. conversation through the Disney animated canon in chronological order, playing our part in a healthy ecosystem between art and criticism and fandom. We run higgledy-piggledy all over creation, looking for the ways these films have shaped our imaginations. Hopefully along the way, we enrich the viewing experience, have some fun, and don't drown in chocolate milk nooks. Today, we're traveling the power lines from Game Central Station into the 52nd movie in the canon, 2012's Wreck-It Ralph. This is the first movie we've watched in a long time, maybe ever, <laughs> ran out of research time, that is directed by a total Disney outsider, Rich Moore, who was hired by John Lasseter out of the Simpsons slash Futurama universe. I also want to mention here the origin story of Jennifer Lee. She was hired on to Disney for a temporary eight-wig gig, helping Phil Johnston write Wreck-It Ralph. But when it was time to unplug, she went turbo, rewrote the code for the entire studio by writing and directing Frozen, which launched her like a Mentos dropped in Diet Cola into the animation stratosphere and eventually into the chief creative officer role at Disney, replacing John Lasseter after his fall from grace in 2017. Helping me detaffify this movie so we can see what we're up against in this candy-coated heart of darkness is a man who has etched in the rock of virtue a legacy beyond compare, the living embodiment of bravery, integrity, grace under pressure, and above all, dignity, Michael Farmer. Let's see, Josh. I'm nine feet tall. I weigh 643 pounds. Got a bit of a temper on me. <laughs> Always bubbling right below the surface, right? I, I'm going to wreck it. <laughs> so uh, we kind of wrecked the podcast at the end of the last episode. <laughs> <laughs> and I wonder if um, if watching Wreck-It Ralph made you feel better about Disney as a studio? Um, well, that's a good question. I don't know. I do think it's interesting that this is kind of total outsiders. I mean, obviously, anybody coming into their directing chops at this age in their life would have, you know, uh, grown up with Disney stuff. So I don't mean like they're totally uninfluenced by Disney, but they are, you know, I think every other movie we've seen, it's been people who, you know, worked within Disney you know, uh, either in story or in, you know, as a, you know, as an artist, as an animator or something, you know, kind of work their ways up through the ranks. And now we've got a couple people who are coming in outside the studio at all. Um, but, you know, Jennifer Lee, as, an ex as, as the example I gave there, you know, is now running the studio. So there's kind of a real, um, I don't know, I just, I did feel like there was, there was some, there was some homage 
to old Disney stuff, um, which I'm sure we'll get to as we get go through our conversation. But I, I do feel like there's there's that that break that we were talking about um, last time. I feel like I, I, I it's 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 still there, you know, like there's still something, um, you know, very uh, put together about <laughs> this next string of movies, you know. Um, so, yeah, I don't know that I feel 100 percent better, but this is not a bad movie. Uh, no, I, I think in a lot of ways it's a really good movie. I'm not sure it's a Disney movie. I mean, for all the reasons you just said, it it doesn't it doesn't really feel like one. It feels, I suppose, more like a Pixar movie, um, and maybe that's just because of the com- the, the similarities to to Toy Story in in terms of the premise. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I mean, in some ways, this feels like something closer to The Simpsons or to Futurama than to uh, than to a Disney movie. Yeah. Yeah. I think that influence is, is clear even to me. Like, I mean, you know, I've, I, I, I watched the Simpsons pretty regularly for a couple years in college and then I, I hadn't watched it before college. Um, and I haven't gone back to it after college, you know, it was a very like just specific time frame in my life when I was, when I was a regular Simpson simpsons viewers when we used to uh we'd finish our meal and at the in the cafeteria and walk down to the dugout and turn the simpsons on you know um <laughs> for the that's my tacoa falls reference for the for the for the episode so all the uh, tacoa falls alumni will know what i'm talking about but yeah that's uh <clears throat> that's my experience with it but i i mean even with that that small amount of experience i feel like that some some of that was was obvious did you see did you what what did you see that that felt simpsons or futurama to you it's just the kind of general irreverent attitude that the movie has and that's not a bad thing i love the simpsons and i love futurama and i remember when this movie got made i heard that rich moore was directing it and i knew rich moore from futurama so i was actually pretty excited about that um so that's not a criticism but it, it does mean that this has a very 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 different tone than um than most everything else in the disney canon wouldn't you say uh, yeah, I think so. I, I wonder if you want to say more about that. Last time, we talked about tone last time, too, with Winnie the Pooh, and I felt like uh, it was really a struggle to try, try and uh, capture what exactly we meant by that. I don't, I don't know if you've, you've got further thoughts on, on what separates the tone of this movie from what we've seen before. Well, I mean, certainly this isn't even trying to be gentle. Um, you, it's, a, it's a PG rating, which I think, um, I think we've seen PG movies before, but this one feels like it's PG for a kind of, um, oh, I don't know, kind of juvenile, uh, juvenile language and attitude. And, and again, there's nothing wrong with that. It fits the, it fits the movie very well. This is a movie, um, about, a what, a, an 11 year old or 12 year old. How old is Vanellope von Schweetz supposed to be? I don't know how old she's supposed to be, but definitely I would feel like the arcade gamer, like, you know, people who are attracted to this movie because of arcade games, like that, that's, that's a, that's a juvenile right. <laughs> pastime, right? <laughs> right, right. And, and that's what it feels like. So rather than being a more grown up version of a Disney movie, it feels like a more kitty version of the Simpsons or Futurama. And in fact, Futurama has an episode, and I, I should look that up and see if Rich Moore directed that too. They have an episode that that revolves around video games, and Fry has to save the world because he was so good at Space Invaders before he went to the future. I think. 
Mm. Um, and, and I mean, so, so not only does it feel similar in terms of the humor, like this is a thing that they've actually kind of done on Futurama and they've played with the animation in a way that more obviously plays with the animation here. And, and it just, it seems to belong to that universe as much or more as it does um, to the Disney universe, which again is not a complaint. Um, it, the movie feels like a real breath of fresh air. Uh, even in the whatever we want to call the current era of Disney, this feels very different from something like Tangled or Frozen. Uh, it, 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 it's coming. The milieu of the movie is totally different because of the video game theme. And then it makes sense that the directors and writers would also be from outside the Disney stable. Mm-hmm. The, the other person worth mentioning here is Jim Reardon, who is also a Simpsons uh, writer and animator. And I think a... Um, I think I think he worked on Futurama as well, but he he wrote this movie, so it really is a it really is a Matt Groening uh, set of set of artists on Wreck It Ralph, which again right. I, it, it sounds like I'm complaining. I'm definitely not complaining. Yeah, yeah, I, I hear that that you're not complaining. It is it is a a very yeah, just a, it, it is a different feel. I did notice, you know. Um, I, I think it, for for me, what I what I noticed was kind of the uh, the the non sequitur. How do you say that word? Non non sequiturs. Sequiturs. I'm I'm really good at mispronouncing words. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like that. I feel like that that defines in some ways um, the Simpsons or or Futurama, you know. And I felt like there was a little bit of that here. No, I mean, this is warm in a way that I think people who don't watch a lot of Simpsons don't think of The Simpsons as being warm. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, The Simpsons actually, you know, for the first 10 years or so of its existence was pretty warm. It, it That changed. Futurama, I would not call warm for the most part, although there's a couple episodes, the one with the dog, probably most notably, that, that, are, that do tug at your heartstrings. Um, so th- this does have the Disney feel in in the sense that it's a you know it it, it has a, a real emotional center to it. Yeah. Did you feel your heart being tugged by this movie? Uh, yeah, I, I did. I, I I thought there were there were a couple of very uh, very moving sequences that are that are not moving in the typical Disney way though. The the scene I'm thinking of. It's probably the one everybody's thinking of when Ralph feels like he has to destroy her Vanellope's car, uh-huh. like there, and and he's he's wearing this medal that says "My Hero, You're My Hero" on it, and yes. this whole time he's destroying her car. He thinks for her own good. He doesn't uh-huh. know what we know or that what what we learn um, shortly thereafter, which is that it's not for her good at all. Um, but like, th- there's something there's something I think very deeply moving about that, and and part of it is that the um, the John C. Riley performance is so good, right? Like uh-huh. this is a he's a serious actor who late in life became a comedian and, and is phenomenally good at that as well. But uh, I, I I found that scene to be to be very effective. Yeah, I agree. I think I think that is a, that is a a moving moment in the movie because he he feels like he like you said he has to do it, um, and you know she's right there watching and and screaming no and the the nice kind of you know directorial. Uh, choice that they make in that scene is before he smashes it he looks down at his hands but that's a that's a point of view shot so it's actually you know us looking down at his hands you know um i don't know how many i didn't go back and 
specifically look how many times they went to the the point of view where you're inside the head of the characters uh you know shots but i don't think there's many maybe the only other one actually is when he's looking uh at the end out of the out of the arcade and and he can see her you know right which um, is the other may... moment i might have po- pointed to in terms of moving moments yeah so see so yeah, i i agree it was, it was it's a well well put together scene The other car destroying scene is the one that I felt was a bit of a, a, a maybe a, a little of an homage because it felt very much like um, when Cinderella has uh, her dress and the stepsisters come in and, and destroy it and tear it apart, you know, like right. And well, that scene that scene is also moving and it's moving kind of in a similar way to the Cinderella scene, except that your sympathies here are not with Vanellope, right? They're with Ralph. And this little brat who has, as far as he's concerned, destroyed his life, he sees that she is also an outcast. He sees her thrown in the mud just the way he's he's thrown in the mud every day. Uh-huh. And all of a sudden, like, you, you, your heart breaks because his heart breaks. It, less right. than because of what's going on with her. You have this, yeah. like, third-hand empathy. <laughs> yeah. But I think you hit on the word there that I was thinking about for this movie is really, you know, what is this movie about? And it seems to be in a real way about developing empathy, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think to some degree that's right. I, part of my problem with this movie is I'm not really sure what it's about on a kind of ethical level. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I've been thinking about this since I watched the movie the other day. Like what, what is this movie? How is this movie trying to tell us to live? And especially how is it trying to tell the, the young people who watch it to live? Because I, I think it's kind of incoherent in that sense. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Well, yeah, I absolutely know what you mean because I think so. You're right. The the constraints of the movie, or the conceit of the movie of you know, like you said, it's very Toy Story ish as far as um, you know. Here's what's happening with the video game characters when you're not playing the video game. You know, just like here's what's happening with your toys when you're not playing with your toys. So that conceit is the same. The problem is that. Uh, video game characters are locked into a storyline in a very different way than your toys are. Right. Yeah, <laughs> you, know? you, you don't have control over them, especially not arcade games, right? Like if if you were playing a open world adventure game, that would be one thing. But mm-hmm. in an arcade game, the whole the whole goal is to get you to die as quick as possible, so you have to put another quarter. In. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, so I guess. That I think I think that is part of the problem that you're that you're sensing and that I, I sense too. Watching this movie is like, you know, there's there's the bad guys anonymous or whatever, um, because you know outside their video game they may not actually have any feelings of of being evil or whatever. You know, there's they're just it's their day job. You know, it's their day job to be bad, but they, you know they can't change it They, you know they're you know that's that's the that's the only solace they can come to is you know you can't change the code and so it is an interesting message of you know what exactly is being taught here i think so my take on it and, and maybe this will help us both find some clarity if if we kind of talk it through so my take was you know um they do get it a little twisted there with uh, trying to figure out like 
I don't know, vocation versus your character and good and bad and stuff like that. But if you if you kind of toss all that aside and don't don't pay attention to all that, because it I think it does bury the theme a little bit. I think what is really going on is that all these characters have um, something that they view as a um, as a weakness that they need to come to acceptance as and use as a strength well and that, know? that's certainly true of the sarah silverman character right of vanellope von schweetz because and i talked about this last time that there's a kind of disability allegory here as in dumbo where she has this glitch and it turns out to be the key to her success and you can see how this was i think fairly clearly written with autism in mind right like mm. th- this is a this is a character that is is meant to appeal to autistic uh, to autistic people, to people with autism, I don't know how they want to, how, how they would like to be, how they would like to be referred to. It, oh, that's interesting. I didn't, I didn't catch the autism link. My understanding is that she, the times she glitches are very much times when autistic people would have trouble as well. Hmm. Interesting. But anyway, so so like that makes that makes total sense for her. But Ralph's problem is not that he has some sort of quality that he doesn't know what to do with. Ralph's problem is everybody he works with is a total jag to him for no reason. <laughs> right? Because it is right. it is just his job. It's their job to be afraid of him during the day. But then for no reason whatsoever, they continue it over into the evening. And so I'm, I'm not sure... Like, if the movie were just following Vanellope... Totally right. Yeah. Be yourself. Use these things. These things that you think of as um, as problems in yourself might actually be opportunities or whatever. I think that's kind of a hackneyed moral, but it, it is a coherent moral. Once you try to apply that same thing to Ralph, it makes no sense whatsoever. Well, so I guess that's where I would I would temper that a little bit with. um that's why I think this movie is a little more, a little less the stand-in for, you know, disability, and also includes some sort of social element or empathy, you know, community element because you have, um, you know, like you said, his Ralph's community is is treating him horribly. And so they really they need to learn, <laughs> but they're not the protagonist. So I, right. I see how this is very twisted around. But, there right. but there's not a lesson scene. for Ralph to learn. Is there? Well, like like what needs to happen is somebody needs to go grab Gene by the lapel and say, hey, idiot, your game <laughs> wouldn't exist without the villain, which I mean, kind of happens, except it's not treated as Gene has the problem. It's treated as this is a thing that Ralph needs to go to therapy for. He needs to go to a. He doesn't need therapy. He needs new coworkers. <laughs> yeah, it's a good point. It's a good point. I, I think, um, man, that's yeah, yeah. And I think I think this is a flaw in the movie. I don't I don't think this is this is. Uh, they they didn't they didn't fully know what to do with it. I think where it comes around a little bit is there is that scene in the jail where you know felix jr finally realizes how they've been treating ralph you know because felix for the first time in his life has experienced any kind of pain or suffering right and something he can't fix because he actually needs to wreck it right and so then he he actually 
this is where I think there, there's that, like, we need each other, you know? And in some ways, like, Ralph, I guess that's the thing Ralph needs to come to, is he's living a, he's living a life of envy. He envies Felix, and he really, in some ways, wants to replace Felix, you know? Like, he doesn't see... You see, you hear it in that opening monologue. He doesn't really see any value in what Felix does because he's, like, you know, he totally downplays it. He's like, well, if I anybody who had a magic hammer could do this, how hard could it be? You know? Given to him by his father. Yeah, given to him by his father. Yeah. So, I mean, he's a real uh, uh, silver spoon guy, I guess Felix Jr. is, you know. But um, yeah, just um, I think I think that is. I, I agree with you that it's totally buried in the movie, but I think if, if we were to draw any sort of principle out of it, there would be you instead of living this this envious life where you where you want to downplay the value of of others or you want to you know I mean he literally like you know when they're at the at the party he <laughs> the first person he takes off the roof is Felix you know and he wants the medal that Felix gets so he's really like downplaying Felix and feeling that envy of Felix like that like he he almost wants to to replace Felix with himself rather than seeing how they need one another you know and I, that's not to take away from I agree there's a flaw in the movie that it comes across as he needs better co-workers but I think if there was any sort of, you know, Christian principle to put onto it, it would be, you know, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn type thing, you know? Sure. I, and by the way, like, I'm not insistent that every movie, even every kid's movie, needs to have some sort of, like, ethical principle, except this movie is so clearly pushing toward an ethical principle, right? It's almost heavy handed in the kind of be yourself thing. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So. Yeah, it's it's a weird one because it's it's a, I I feel like it's a language problem in some ways that this movie faces because they want it to be <laughs> they're trying to 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 do this good guy bad guy thing, you know, because it's video games. But it's not really about are you bad or are you good, you right. know, like it's 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 something else that they're actually dealing with. And so then it, but it all gets jumbled in, in the mix of the movie. And in some ways that's more interesting. Like, I think the more hackneyed thing to do would be to make it turn out that Felix was a bad guy the whole time, but he's not right. Like, like even when he doesn't invite Ralph to the party, he clearly feels bad about it. Felix really is a good guy. Mm -hmm. um, it's just King Candy, Turbo, whatever you want to call him, who's, who's the bad guy. So like yeah, I mean, in some ways it doesn't take the easy way out, but at the same time, I, I, I don't think it has a very coherent kind of ethical thrust. Yeah. Although what you said makes more sense than what I think the movie is actually trying to do. Once again, yeah. you've, once again you've fixed one of these movies. <laughs> I, I hate to just start off complaining about it, though, because like, the movie is so wildly <laughs> imaginative, and it's so much fun, especially for people my age and your age right because i used mm -hmm. to go to arcades and play games just like this and i'm sure that when you were a kid you used to imagine um the characters from one game appearing in another game and like the 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 world behind the scenes of these these games that don't have a whole lot of story mm -hmm. right and you'd make up stories for them while you were playing at least i did uh, make, make up stories for them while i was playing them because they are kind of blank slate there's not um 
there's not a lot going on in Donkey Kong, which is what uh, Fix It Felix Jr. is clearly, I think, most similar to. Yeah. So, so like I um. I, I I hate to complain about it because the movie's so much fun and it it gets so much about the the kind of world of those video games, all of them, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Well, I would say for the first what the first 20 minutes of the movie or or maybe 30 i don't know i don't know exactly when does he get to sugarland i feel like when he gets to sugarland the first act of the movie is, is the yeah part. the first act of the movie is exactly what you're saying and it is incredibly joyful i mean once they get to sugarland there is still some video game uh trope stuff that happens but it's it's a lot less that's you true know? The movie really changes at that that point. It's I mean <laughs> at that point the most video game stuff you're getting is like Mario Kart, you know, right. shoutouts. Right. Or um, um, yeah, it's hard to describe exactly what Mario Kart is supposed to be crossed with to make Sugar Rush, right? Yeah. Um, oh yeah, Sugar Rush, not Sugar Land. Sorry. Um, Candyland, I guess, is what it's crossed yeah, with. Yeah, Candyland. That's not a video game. Yeah. So anyway, but I agree. Yes, it's it's uh, it is. It's really fun. Um, especially in those opening sequences, you know, even just, you know, like I, <laughs> I, I love the, you know, when they leave the bad guys and on, uh, thing, it, it zooms out and they're inside Pac-Man, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just little, little touches like that are really fun. Who was your street fighter character? <laughs> that's a great question i i actually i didn't play street fighter that much did they not have it for the sega genesis i either they didn't have it or we you know we're just we didn't we didn't do that you know like we're we're kind of uh i mean i definitely played street fighter i know i did but i don't i, I didn't play it often enough to to be able to answer that question who was your street fighter character i played with ryu or ken although i have beaten street fighter with every character i, I wow. love that game check you out yeah well not the arcade <laughs> version you understand the home version right yeah the version for the super nintendo yeah um you know i think they made a big mistake with street fighter in this movie though um they have m bison who is the the big bad in street fighter too mm-hmm. as uh, as our listeners i'm sure know they have him say are you going turbo and that's like our introduction to that the term going turbo, right? Which becomes essential to the movie. Mm-hmm. But the problem is street fighter has a version called street fighter two turbo. <laughs> That's the one I remember actually is street fighter two turbo. That's right. really funny. So, so having the street fighter character say, are you going turbo? I, I think is really distracting for anybody who is actually a fan of street fighter. <laughs> Which is to say, you know, everybody born between 1980 and 1985. Right. <laughs> yeah. Because it, it took me like the whole – maybe that's the point. Like maybe they're trying to distract you from thinking what what does Turbo mean? Mm-hmm. Maybe they want you thinking about Street Fighter Two Turbo. By the way, why did they call it that? It makes no sense. Uh, why did they call Street Fighter Two Turbo Street Fighter Two Turbo? Other than it was the 90s and everything had to be extreme. Like, that yeah, that, that, that never extreme. made sense to me at the time, and it doesn't make sense to me now. But I, I, I wonder if they were actually trying to distract us from asking too many questions about the phrase going turbo by having M. Bison say it. Maybe. Maybe that's right. Because <laughs> it it the movie does kind of hinge a little bit on not suspecting King Candy as of being turbo. Right. You know? 
which is which is a, a dynamic we saw in um oh shoot what's the other movie we just saw that in where you can't suspect the bad guy where is it tangled surely it's not tangled surely what what are, you, what are you referring to specifically? In, in a in a recent episode of this of this podcast, you said that there's a trilogy where you have um, bad guys who are kind of on the inside. Oh, and it's I, I mean Frozen is that way, and also <laughs> yeah, Frozen um, is definitely that way. Utopia is that way. But what was the yes. other one? I don't know. Maybe it was Tangled. Maybe, but in Entangled, it's all on the surface, so I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I wish I had a better memory of what I said myself. <laughs> and I hear it twice because I edit the show, so you'd think I would remember, but I don't. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I heard it described on a... Uh, I'm going to forget the term now. I was listening to a recent podcast, a different podcast, not not on the Christian Humanist Network. It was, I think it was labeled, and the 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 director or the not the director sorry the the host said that he has um like pod podnesia or something like that like he forgets everything that he says inside the podcast oh yeah so. yeah if you if you asked me something i said three episodes ago i would never remember it yeah but anyway that's a thing they're doing a lot in the 2010s right you have a, a character who is a secret bad guy mm-hmm. yeah Yeah, you don't suspect it. Although I, I mean, I remember being pretty surprised watching this movie. I didn't. I certainly didn't suspect that King Candy was Turbo. Yeah, it's it's kind of clear something weird is going on, but connecting it back to Turbo, I think, is actually. I mean, I think that's a pretty good plot device. Like, it's one of those things where the because you're right they they seed it so early you know like i mean is it's the opening minutes of the movie that they seed this term going turbo and then you have uh felix explaining it um to uh what's her name what's the uh calhoun yeah calhoun he has it explaining it to calhoun so then at that point you think oh okay i understand what what this is but it's it's almost a, a fake out there because you feel like, okay, this is just like an in-world sort of, you know, thing. You, like, you don't – you because at the end of his story, it seems like Turbo's dead, you know? Like, you wouldn't think like, oh, but Turbo actually lived on and is now, like, secretly taking over every new racing game, you know, because he always wants to be the best racer. Well, that's the other thing, right? It, it makes total sense that it would be a racing game, and yet you don't think, oh, Turbo is a racing game, and whatever the whatever the game he took over first was, Good Goodyear? I don't remember what, what the name of the other racing game is. You know, yeah, quick, I don't know. It was a quick yeah. one. Another really great moment, though, for the video game fans, because it's like the way they have it drawn, it's like terrible, like graphics, you know, 90s graphics. But like the the kids who are playing are like, these graphics are amazing. <laughs> Road I remember that. What'd you say? Road Blasters. Was Road Blasters. Idea. Yeah. Road Blasters. Totally. That was a real game. Well, I, I totally remember seeing things and thinking, these are the most amazing graphics I've ever seen in my life. And then, you know, you look back on it now and you're like, wow. Well, are... I remember the 16-bit uh, consoles, the Super Nintendo and Genesis. Mm-hmm. I remember that they had scrolling backgrounds so that the background would scroll at a different rate than the foreground. 
Mm-hmm. And it was like the coolest thing there had ever been. <laughs> yeah. Now, now you can like now now you can explore a universe that's actually larger than our own universe. So, what are you gonna do? Yeah. What are you gonna do? It's. I assume you enjoyed all the uh, all the little cameos. Yeah, the ones I caught. I mean, on, on like there's a well, you know, obviously um. You know, I'm, I'm the Sega kid, so Sonic Sonic the Hedgehog has this little PSA announcement. Right, uh, Dr. Eggman. Yeah, and Dr. Eggman's in the in the bad and on. Um, and uh, uh, you see the a lot of the stuff in the, um, the Grand Central Station. I know all of that stuff is, you know, video game characters, but I, you know, it's sometimes hard to recognize. Out Did of you context, not spend you know? time in actual video arcades? Were you mostly a at-home console video game I was, player? I was more an at-home console. We did play... I mean... <clears throat> so I, I do remember going to... Um, oh, now I'm going to forget the name of it. There's a there's a fun center or something like that. Family fun center, Is I think. Is it the one and, at 72nd and Dodge? Yeah, that's right. Oh, man. I used to go there in grad school. Yeah. <laughs> my, friend, my friend Walker Plank and I... My friend named yeah. Walker Plank. Um, Walker and I beat... The Simpsons arcade game at uh, at the Family Fun Center. We probably spent fifteen bucks playing that game. That's awesome. Yeah. So yeah, we de- like definitely you know we had outings the Family Fun Center or um, there was a we used to go to to Pizza Hut and there was there was something at Pizza sure. Hut. I don't remember Rampage what. Rampage or whatever. Yeah, yeah, something like that. But yeah, I would say I was more a Genesis kid than a than an arcade kid for sure. As far as hours spent, yeah, and and I mean, there's a lot of stuff here that I only know from playing ports of it. Later, I have a, uh, I have a PS3 is the last video game system I bought, but I have a, um, I have a disc that has a bunch of old arcade games on it. So that like, that's my experience with Burger Time or Tapper or things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, both of which I, I think are used to pretty good effect here. Yeah. Yeah, Tapper. <laughs> Tapper scene is pretty great. <laughs> uh, the one I didn't understand was the the heroes um, the heroes duty game. Now I you know I know that that's Call of Duty or Halo or whatever, but I've never really played mm-hmm. those games. Yeah. No, but yeah, definitely the uh, the stand up arcade version where you get the where you get the gun and uh-huh. you're shooting against the giant screen. The one I used to love though was. Uh, Time, um, time police. What was that called? Yeah, time police was good, or something time, like that. And there was a time was crisis. A, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and then there was also a, a Jurassic Park one after Jurassic Park came out, where you're like you're riding in the vehicle, but it's the same sort of thing. You're shooting dinosaurs, or right, whatever. right. And they, well, they they also have the the zombie from House of the Dead. In oh, this, in the in the movie, in the, yeah, yeah. Because Kano from Mortal Kombat rips his heart out. Right, that part. I think that was the PG rating right there. <laughs> it is kind of like, wild that there is a like, Disney movie where what, somebody rips somebody's heart out. What just happened? <laughs> <laughs> that was a little shocking. <laughs> well, the heart was blue, to be fair. But to like, not fair. only did he rip the heart out, it was still pumping blood. Yeah, that would get you a PG thirteen back in the day. Well, you know, got, uh, have you talked about that it, story got... on the on this show before? That's the reason the PG thirteen 
exists. Right, yeah, from uh, Temple of Doom. Yeah, Temple of Doom. Temple of Doom got a PG rating because there was no PG-13. Or or it was the first movie with a PG-13? I forget. I forget which way the story goes. Yeah, I can't remember which way that I, went. They either invented PG-13 to give to Temple of Doom, or after that movie they were like, okay, we need, a, we need another rating in here. <laughs> I don't remember which way it went. But yeah, PG-13 because of Temple of Doom and ripping the guy's heart out. So. Ah, good times. Yeah, I uh, I figured we would be able to talk about the video game aspects of this movie for some time. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I really liked about the uh, the kind of eight bit feel of the early parts of this movie? I, I loved how they animated the character movements in eight bits, uh-huh. and I, I read that that was actually really difficult to do. That it wasn't. You would think it wouldn't be hard, but apparently, when you're an animator, you spend your whole education learning not to do that. Right. They, had, they had to do it. <laughs> and, then, and then you have to unlearn everything you've learned. But that that was just wonderful, the way that the, the nice landers in Fix It Felix, like they move that way even in their um even in their free time. Right. Even in their, their more three D fleshed out form. Right. I really uh, I really enjoyed that. I I thought like you said, the the first act of this movie, they get everything so right and it's so much fun. The the grand not Grand Central Station. What do they call it? Grand Charging Station or whatever. Yeah. Anyway, they, they they like that that was so much fun, and the idea of moving from game to game was so much fun that I think it carries it through some of the less effective sections in the in the second and third acts. Mm-hmm. What did you think of the kind of buddy cop sections of the movie with Fix It Felix and Calhoun? Uh, <laughs> it's definitely the most interesting Disney Disney romance we've seen so far. I think um, it's funny. I mean, it's it's funny. I, I like the you know she's been programmed with the most tragic backstory ever. You know, and that is uh, a line that really that could have been right out of Futurama. Yeah, that <laughs> was, was it. Was well done. I thought that was funny. And the. I mean, I felt like there was there was a couple things there. I mean, that's that's kind of where you start losing the um, the video game stuff, and you move into more of this. You're in this candy world stuff. So like the the puns move from things like Game Central Station into uh, Laffy Taffy Vines and Nesquik Sand and right. stuff like that. You know, right. which has nothing to do with video games at all. It's just now they're in this this candy world you know, double stripe you know like whatever like all that stuff is just you know candy candy based so i read that, def- i read that one explanation of that is that because they're in a game from 1997 the product placement is there in the game you know what i mean like the the late 90s are such a golden era of product placement that's true that's although a, that's a- i wonder i do wonder how much nesquik and laffy taffy paid to have their their products mentioned so prominently in record right. yeah so i did yeah, like the, I, like, I did it, like the detail that the double stripe disappears because that's such a that's such a great like platform game trope but then you do have to wonder why are there platform game tropes in <laughs> in, in, in sugar, sugar rush? rush like like yeah. what in, in what context would you need a disappearing <laughs> branch it's not right. mega man yeah, well, you can't. 
Yeah, you can't think too much about the uh, who programmed these games. <laughs> well, know? and I mean, one explanation, I guess, would be that Turbo, when he got in there, because he reprograms that game, maybe he accidentally imported some platform game stuff from God knows where. Oh, yeah, there you go. That, that works. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's it was fine. And I felt like there was a few points in this movie where it's a little abrupt. Um, and the, the, the buddy, you know, the buddy cop thing where they, when they break up because he calls her a dynamite gal or whatever, you know, like it's, it's a good sight gag of like her backstory flashing back with, you know, the, the giant guy in the armored suit saying dynamite gal and all these different funny situations, you know, uh-huh. but then it's just, you know, get out, it's over, you know? And I felt a little bit like the same way with, uh, um, you know, when uh, when Ralph and Vanellope are first kind of finally having a, a real interaction and it's, you know, you want me to help you, <laughs> you know, but then like, y- like he did just help her like a second ago, you know, like, I don't know, it just there was a couple points like that where it just felt a little abrupt. Did so. you did you buy the, the, the central emotional relationship between the two of them? Between Ralph and Vanellope uh-huh. or between or between Ralph uh, and Vanellope? Okay. Yeah, there's no, there's no emotion to the other relationship, right? It's played. It's played purely for laughs. Even her tragic backstory is is so ironized that. Right. <laughs> That's the emotional heart of the movie, Michael. What are you talking about? Um. Yeah, I got it. I mean, I I don't know. I don't know if uh. I felt. I just felt like with this movie, I'm having a hard time where I come down on it because it is very imaginative. It's very fun. Um, I just, I, I feel like the first time I watched it, I really enjoyed it. I was like, Oh, this is a good, like, you know, uh, this is a good movie. But then this, this time when I watched it, yeah, I've watched it twice in the last two days, getting ready for the podcast. It just, it, I don't know. It didn't land the same way. And maybe it's just the mood I'm in. I don't know. I just, I was kind of, um, that's a, that's a difficult question to answer because I feel like the first time I watched the movie, I definitely was like all on board on you know Felix and Vanellope, like it worked, and this time it just it felt a little flatter to me. Huh. I'll have to go back and watch it again. Maybe I'm a I'm I'm a sucker for these kind of intergenerational intergender relationships, probably because almost all of my English majors when I taught college were female. Mm-hmm. Um. So like I I'm I'm kind of a I'm I'm kind of a sucker for you know grumpy older man <laughs> mentors uh, cheerful <laughs> cheerful girl yeah um, so I I may not That's be funny. able to judge it terribly well but I I did I did like that that aspect of this and it's nice to see an emotional relationship in a Disney movie that has no romantic undertone whatsoever right because it would obviously be kind of gross if it did because vanellope is supposed to be a a pre-adolescent yeah yeah no i actually i i agree with you in in that aspect of like this is a fun relationship to have represented on screen you know like there's no family bond there's no like it's just two people who who need each other who have some similarities and that they're both kind of outcasts but yeah, like you said, intergenerational, inner, you know, different different genders, and it's you know, it's completely. Uh, they both learn from each other, you know. And I really, I do, I do 
by the time he's ready to, at the end of the movie, like sacrifice himself, because he thinks he's, you know, it's going to be game over for him, right. you know? Um, like, I did find that, you know, touching that, that, that they brought it all the way to that point. Like, that, that self sacrificial love, I guess you would call it, you know, but not a romantic love. Well, and this is the thing that makes him a hero and, and that she uses her glitch to save him. And, and so, I mean, you do kind of have a an attempt at least to wrap up the the kind of the two ethical thrusts of the movie. Mm-hmm. And maybe yeah. maybe that's a little bit too neat. I don't know. No, I didn't think it was, though. Like, that's not my problem with the movie is that it's too neat. You know, <laughs> definitely. Yeah, yeah if anything, the... you're right. It is, it is, it's messy, right? It's, it's a movie <laughs> right. that doesn't quite hold together. Yeah. Um, and like I said, like, I, I don't know, I, it may, it may just be, you know, that it, it caught me on the wrong day, you know, because I, I do remember enjoying it more than I enjoyed it this time. So maybe it's just, just a weird, you know, I mean, it's all, all these things. I think it's, it's fun that we do this podcast and that we're watching them in order and everything, but you know, I feel like were we to start over again tomorrow, like we'd have different things to say and, and feel different ways about all the oh, movies, course, that we've yeah. watched, you know, so so yeah, I'm not I'm not trying to be too hard on this movie. Did you watch it like... with your kids? No, they're out of town right now. So that you know, I'm I'm just. Uh... I would I would just love to know what a generation that didn't grow up in arcades, like doesn't doesn't like the first third of the movie wouldn't make any sense to a kid born in 2003 or 2006 or I don't know how, I don't know how old your oldest yeah. is. Not oldest 2003. Is yeah, 2010. <laughs> yeah, so, so, we're old, Michael. <laughs> so I mean, it wouldn't make it wouldn't make any sense. Um, it wouldn't make any sense to her. So I wonder if she would enjoy the movie anyway. The sugar rush stuff seems much more calculated to appeal to children. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you don't need to know anything about video games to appreciate that part of the movie. Right. And we'll probably appreciate it more if you don't know anything about video games and aren't thinking too much about. Like how would this work as an actual game and stuff like that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how many levels are there in Sugar Rush? I wondered where the the player character is. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, like, who's it's the player controlling in Sugar Rush? Yeah. Well, it's they're they're the uh, the they the part of the movie we see like they're vying to be an avatar for the, the oh, player. That's true. That's true. Because they get nine different avatars every every day. Every day. Yeah. So, which is kind of a fun idea, you yeah. know, for an arcade game. Like it, it, you know, you go in every like, especially if you're a frequent arcade visitor. Every time you go back to that game, there's there's a chance that you you know, it kind of pushes you to that. Um, like you said, you beat Street Fighter with every single guy. Like it kind of pushes you to like use different characters. It's kind of fun. Uh, I, I really liked the detail on Sugar Rush where the, the little girl wants to play the game because it is clearly a game meant for little girls. Uh-huh. And those two fat adults uh, <laughs> won't let her won't let her play because they want to play as all the characters. Right. I thought that was a, I thought that was a great detail. Yeah. Those two fat adult men. Um, yeah. Won't let the little girl play the little girl's game. <laughs> yeah. There's definitely some arcade culture stuff in there too, you know? And again, like it sounds like you spent more time in arcades than I did, but you know, putting your quarter on the machine for next and, uh, and stuff, you know, it's uh, all, or even being forced to play a game that you don't really want to play because, because there's nothing else available. Yeah. Nothing else available. So you're like, 
Okay, I guess I'll play Fix It Felix Jr. <laughs> and, and trying to convince yourself that's the game you wanted to play the whole time. My game right. like that is Dig Dug. Dig Dug was, was always open at the arcade I went to. And like Dig Dug's not a very fun game, but I played it so much that I ended up kind of enjoying it. Yeah. I, I played a lot of Dig Dug. It's fine, right? Like most of those, what most of those first generation arcade games are fun for about three minutes. It's 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 weird to think of I, people who are ten years older than us. I'm sure are like you know have very fond memories of those games. But like the games I have fond memories of are the ones where you walk down the street beating people up to kind of final fight mm-hmm. um, type game, Teenage Mutant Ninja yeah. Turtles, The Simpsons, yep. stuff like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Yep, I'm, I'm I'm on the same wavelength with you on those ones. And then once you get to the ones where you have to use your body to do things, I'm I'm done. Like the ones where you <laughs> you're skiing and you actually stand on the skis. Right. Like that's that's after that's after my generation. Dance Dance Revolution. Oh yeah, I've never played Dance Dance Revolution. It'll surprise you to learn. <laughs> <laughs> Which they must have had a game like that, right? Because they have um, Skrillex as a cameoing at the party, which means there must be a game in which Skrillex is a character. Right. So they must have had like a DJ game in um, yeah. in the arcade. Yeah, they must have. Silly. I really wanted to play Fix It Felix though. I wonder they I think they used they have it online. I, I didn't actually go try to play it. Yeah, oh I don't know if you still can. So at the time that the movie came out, there was a there was a flash version. <laughs> <laughs> because that's when Flash was still a thing. And uh, there was also an iOS version, but it, it's not in the App Store anymore. They, whatever, I don't know what you call it. <laughs> it's not unplugged anymore, but whatever it is, when you, when you remove your, your game from the App Store, you know. I hope, I wonder that, if I hope that Ralph wasn't in another app when they removed <laughs> it from the store, or else he might have ceased to exist forever. I, I do kind of wonder, like, at Disney... How, you know, whoever, whoever had to make that, you know, do that thing, you know, like it's probably just send an email to Apple and be like, Hey, please don't, don't have our thing in the store anymore. But I wonder how they felt about it at that moment. It was probably some intern. (laughs) That's true. I probably didn't even know. Um, (laughs) No, I think this movie had some, like, if I was super into this movie, uh, it really had some like cool stuff. Like they actually built, uh, you know, fix it. Fix it, Felix Jr. arcade consoles, you know, to, to help promote the movie that they had in in select theaters and stuff, you know. That's so, cool. I'm sure you could get one of those online for a million dollars. I'm looking eBay. it up right now. Please hold, <laughs> I'm gonna check. All right, I'm on eBay. They have Fix It Felix Jr. for the Sega Genesis for fourteen dollars. For the Sega Genesis? Yeah, they must have made it to play on old Sega Genesis. They also wow. have Oh, this is just a mock up for the Nintendo. But I oh no, they don't have they don't have a console for sale, at least not on eBay. Bummer. Mm-hmm. I think you can play the console at Disneyland. Oh yeah. It would make sense that at least one of them would end up there after they were done with the promotional tour. I'm sure the director has one in his basement. I would think so. He could yeah, probably so. have one personally made for him for the amount of money he probably made for this movie. Yeah. So. Uh, we haven't really talked about the voice performances beyond um, I mentioned how good John C. Riley is. It, I, mean, I think it's worth noting. I don't think anybody in this movie had ever appeared in a Disney movie before. 
That's crazy. I didn't know that. I knew, it's I mean, it's I all like LA comedians. John C. Riley, yeah. Sarah Silverman, Jack McBrayer from 30 Rock, Jane Lynch, Alan Tudyk as King Candy. No, I mean, he's he's basically doing evil Ed Wynn. Yes, basically. Which is, which is a, a wonderful performance, right? Like, the, who would have thought that Ed Wynn could be scary? <laughs> Listeners, there's an amber alert. That's that's uh, that's the noise you just heard. <laughs> so if anybody sees a brown or tan Dodge Durango with the license plate RRP0451, that's a Georgia license plate, make sure you call the police. All right. I don't see one here in my study where I'm recording this, so <laughs> I'm afraid the amber alert wasn't very helpful for me. They must catch people with those Amber Alerts beamed to your phones, but it, it must annoy tens of thousands more people than can possibly help them. Well, especially, like, you're living in a large city. Like, I get those very rarely. Oh, is that true? Here, here I get every, one probably well, every two weeks. Yeah, I, w- I would say in Atlanta you probably get them a lot. Sometimes in the middle of the night. That's really nice. Oh, my goodness. I can't believe they send them out in the middle of the night. Anyway, where was I? Alan Tudyk <laughs> is Evil Edwin. Mindy Kaling, Ed O'Neill is the uh, the arcade guy. He he's he's pretty funny. He's the the darkest line in the movie, right? That it's going crazy just like my nana. Yeah. Might have to put it out to pasture just like my just nana. Just like my nana. That's that's uh, that's dark. Yeah, that's very Simpsons and Futurama. It right? really is. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, there's I I don't think there's anybody in this movie certainly any of the major roles who had been in a Disney movie before. And some of them have been since. I think Alan Tudyk has been in quite a bit. But um, I, it, it just goes to show you how outside the Disney stable um, Wreck-It Ralph is. Mm-hmm. I thought everybody was pretty well cast. I mean, they're mostly playing they're mostly playing the same sorts of characters they always play, right? Like Jane Lynch is definitely playing Sue Sylvester from from Glee. Jack McBrayer is definitely playing Kenneth Parnell from Thirty Rock. So they're kind of relying on these um, these kind of standard parts for these character actors, but they do a good job. I mean, there's a reason yeah. why they're standard parts, right? And that's nothing new. I mean, we we talked about that several yeah, times. Yeah, yeah. You know, going back I mean, that's to, that's like, Phil jungle, that's jungle Phil Harris, Brooks, right? Yeah. yeah. So I don't I don't fault them for that. No, not not at all. And the writing for those characters is good for the most part. The the Jane Lynch character in particular has just hysterical lines where it's clear that they should be R rated, but they're not. You know what I mean? Like they've 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 clearly written an R rated movie for her and then changed the lines to make them PG. Right. So that's fun. Yeah, they are. Pre- they're pretty good. They don't make a ton of sense, but it works. <laughs> All she has to do is push people around. That's pretty much it. Hit them with her helmet. <laughs> Did any of the performances stand out to you? Um, just King Candy's, and I think just because, like you said, like he's you know he's so obviously doing Edwin, which you know, I, you know when you're watching it, you're like that. It's impossible. That this is Edwin. <laughs> the guy's been dead since the sixties. Sounds just <laughs> like him. He sounds just like him, you know. So. I wonder if he does any of the uh, Mad Hatter voices or anything for Disney now, or if they they probably have a, a dedicated voice guy who's cheaper than Alan Tudyk. Maybe I don't know. But yeah, definitely some Mad Hatter vibes from from King Candy. So, 
I really liked uh, Mindy Kaling as the mean girl racer Taffeta Mutton Fudge. <laughs> That's a great name. Yeah, all the uh, all the racers had kind of gross names. I liked uh, what was the girl Candlehead? Yeah, it's uh, yeah, just Candlehead. <laughs> there's there's Rancis Fluggerbutter. <laughs> Rancis. And that's a boy, right? Like, Rancis is a boy. Yeah, I don't know. I thought... I, I, they're not. They're obviously not important characters in the movie, so I wasn't sure. I liked the moment when... Um, when Vanellope becomes princess again, and she says that she's going to have them all executed. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty good. Although, yeah, that, pretty that, good. that also led to something that annoyed me, which is that she announces she's not going to be a princess and that the kingdom's going to be a constitutional democracy and she's going to be president. But if it's a constitutional democracy, she has to be voted as president. She can't just declare herself president. <laughs> it's her last act as queen. <laughs> like, a, a place that calls a itself a constitutional democracy and has an appointed president? Like, you're, you're okay. describing a totalitarian regime. <laughs> Yeah. Maybe that'll come up in the sequel. I haven't seen the sequel. I haven't seen the sequel either. There's a there's a clip I saw online. At first when I first saw it, I thought it was just fan made, but I don't I, it may be officially from Disney. I can't imagine it's officially from Disney, but it has Vanellope with all the other Disney princesses since she's technically a princess. That's true, yeah. Well, she I think the Disney princesses make an appearance in Ralph Breaks the Internet. Okay, so maybe that's what it is from. Maybe it's Maybe that's what I saw was a clip from Ralph Breaks the Internet. Yeah, and I've, I've heard that their appearance in that movie is hysterical, but I don't know anything about it. Yeah, okay. So that may be what I saw. But it, when I saw it, the reason I thought it has to be fan-made is because they're so careful with that Disney princess line of not actually blending the princesses, you know? And so if they did it for that movie, that's that's also an interesting break from from their the past things that they've done. Well, I guess to show you the degree to which the, the Wreck-It Ralph movies kind of stand outside the rest of the Disney franchises. Mm-hmm. Huh. I guess we'll find out in a few months when we get to Wreck-It Ralph. Yeah, it's, not, Ralph, it's not long from now. Ralph Wrecks the Internet. Yeah. I remember when they announced Ralph Wrecks the, Inter- the Internet, I thought, oh, God, they're doing sequels again. Oh yeah, and they're—I mean—that's that's what we're in for here in the next. <laughs> I think we already had this conversation too. If I, if my. Well, I mean, the the only two we're up for is Ralph breaks the internet and Frozen Two. It's it's um, Pixar that did so many sequels. Yeah. That was the kind of decay of Pixar. Right, but I think it's um, it's still interesting that you know we're we're down to, you know, what a dozen movies or whatever left, and if you include this one. And so if you include this one in that dozen or so movies, a third of them are franchise, you know, it's That's like true. the original and the sequel, the original and the sequel. So it's, it's, uh, so yeah, there was it, no way they weren't going to make frozen a, a sequel to, it was such a, such a phenomenon. Yeah. All right. What else to say about this movie? Anything? I don't know. Like I, it's a weird movie because while I was watching it, I really enjoyed it. But looking back on it, I kind of saw the cracks in it in a way that I I was kept from while I was actually watching it. And I don't Mm -hmm. know if that's a a compliment or an insult. It's a complisol, I guess. (laughs) Complisol. 
they like to do that in this movie too. They've got the fun gin. They've got the the vorp or the verp. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the compassal. Yeah. I think it is it is a fun movie. It is like you said, it's enjoyable when you ride you're, you're riding through it. You know, it's a bit of a ride. They've got these very different worlds that you enter into. You spend, I, I feel like you spend most of your time in, in Sugar Rush. At least that's the way it feels looking yeah, back. Yeah, yeah, No, you don't. But like, but you know, they've, you know, they've got um, Ralph's world. Uh, they've got the Game Central Station. They've got the the Bug World, and they've got the you know Sugar Rush, and they they blend nicely. You know, like like you can definitely see how you know ralph and felix and calhoun don't belong inside sugar rush you know like they they did a good job stylistically making them all look different enough but also playing nicely together you know Mm -hmm. which i feel like is something more and more animated movies are are starting to do you know like i'm thinking of like into the spider verse or um you know something like that where there's there's these real blending of styles and disney was you know, Disney was was to it early in 2012, so good for them. Good well, for them. Next month we have a genuine phenomenon. <laughs> I'll probably tell this story again next month, but I I remember we went to see Frozen on Thanksgiving. It had just come out, and we went Thanksgiving evening to see it, and we ran into these students at the movie theater and they were clearly making fun of us for going to see frozen uh-huh. and two weeks later it was the only thing anybody at the college could talk about like all the students <laughs> were super into it so it's my it's my little moment of being into something huge before it was huge so we'll see if i still like it i have not watched it since then and I'm, I'm hoping I have a former student who expressed some interest in coming on for this, and I'm hoping she will because she worked at the theme park for a for a semester during college, and um, Frozen really kind of destroyed the theme parks. Uh-huh. So I'm I'm hoping we can get her on, and she'll she'll talk about it. I'll send her a, I'll send her a message uh, as soon as we're done here, and and find oh, out. Cool. Well, that sounds like fun. One last thing before we go. I really liked the uh, the Wizard of Oz gag with the Oreos. <laughs> yes, I laughed embarrassingly loud at the Wizard of Oz gag. <laughs> it was so I, stupid. I almost, <laughs> it's so good. It's so stupid and so good. <laughs> I almost forgot to mention it. I was just uh, scanning through my notes here before, uh, before we close it off. Although I so. read online, if you look carefully at the cookies, they're not actually Oreos. Oh, they didn't get they didn't get permission. They must from, be Hydrox. Uh, oh man, you know people who like those are say that they're the real thing. I think they were Is the that, original I, chocolate sandwich cookie. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know if I've ever had one. Um, I I think they used to serve them in Sunday school. They're not as good. <laughs> I think I can say that. All Sunday schools everywhere. In my Sunday school, anyway. I don't, know. I don't know what they did in your Sunday school. 
All right. Our, our first liaison is Kristen Philippic. We're on the old interwebs at beforetheywere.live and christianhumanist.org. You can help us continue this conversation by reaching out to us at beforetheywerelive at gmail.com. You can, you can remind us of all the things we used to say and, and don't remember. Uh, we also want to encourage you to set your podcast player's dials to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, where you'll find abundance of new and old shows to keep it going. Michael and I know there are a great number of podcasts out there you could be spending your time on, so thank you for spending the time with us. So for Michael Farmer, I'm Joshua Altmanchofer, reminding you to take it one game at a time. All right, to be continued.